Welcome NEC Hoops fans. I'm NEC Senior Associate Commissioner Ron Ratner. We are here today to celebrate our 40th anniversary with a very special guest in our inaugural Made in the NEC interview on the NEC Overtime Pod. At this time, I'd like to introduce a former NEC student athlete, coach, and longtime NEC Hoops analyst, Tim Capstra. Tim, thanks for joining us. All right, Ron, uh, all pumped up to be here. I had a little coffee this morning, talking to you. Come on, this is going to be great. <laughs> We've been uh, looking forward to this for a long time, so let's get right into it. we got a lot of ground to cover here. Let's start with young young Tim. Uh, oh, growing up in, in Utica, New York, uh, what were your youth sports experiences, uh, you know, as you were growing up? Well, I, I was... <laughs> And again, you don't want me to go on for two hours, do you? You, you want you want some quick answers right here, right? Listen, I, I was like a jack of all trades. I was good at every sport, but wasn't great at, at any one. I probably, uh, at age eight, though, was the best athlete I had ever seen. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I, was, I, was, I peaked at age eight, and then it went all downhill from there. I, I, was, I was good young. Uh, at the time, there was a, a pro, pro player named Andy Van Slyke that used to always be my catcher. I would be the pitcher and he would be, uh, he would bat third and I would bat fourth. Well, he went on to keep getting better. Uh, ended up marrying this girl I went to the prom with, uh, signed for $6 million to be, a, a, you know, in the first round. And uh, I, I kind of was searching for a college by the end of it. You know what I mean? But I, um, uh, I peaked early. Uh, I had a wonderful experience. I was pretty good at every sport, but not, not great. But in Utica, New York, uh, you don't, you know, I mean, if you're pretty good, uh, you know, it kind of like, uh, I, I, I was good, but then I had a knee operation. Um, my senior year, was, my best sport was football and I had a knee operation and things kind of got hung up. And then I went on some interviews where I might play basketball at Hamilton college, but they, you know, it, it, different things like that. And maybe, and, and, and I just ended up, what happened was Late in my senior year, a gentleman named Wald Hamline came into my house. I was 17 years old. I had my mother. He, had, he was from New Hartford, New York, which is right next door to Utica. And by the end of the conversation, I would have gone to any school anywhere in the world that this young 25-year-old guy was uh, at. It was over. It was over before I visited because of the charisma, the personality, and my mother knew that he would take care of me. And it's unbelievable how that one meeting, one time with Wald Hamline, I was 17 years old ago, this is 1978, right? And here we are right now, and I've gone through this lifetime, and Wald is still one of my great friends. He's, he, he recruited me, he hired me, he fired me, he did it all, you know what I mean? And, and, and it's amazing how your life uh, transforms by that one single decision or that one place you go. Every It's like the six degrees of separation. Once you choose, choose a college, and I'm going through this with my daughter right now. You just went through it with your son, Kyle. Everything after that decision is, is, is connected to that decision. And therefore, the college you choose in the Northeast Conference or anywhere is the single greatest decision you'll ever make in your life. And so uh, that's kind of how I got to it. I was a pretty good, pretty good athlete, my football, but he wanted me to keep trying football. Hey, you can still play football. You, you still got it. You're, you're good. But uh, I turned out my, my knee was all kind of beat up and I, and I struggled when I got to Wagner. 
So for people who may not know, Walt Hamline, the longtime football coach at Wagner, is still the athletic director there after all these years. Um, as you got to Wagner, tell us about your experience at Wagner, both as a student and as a student athlete. Well, uh, like a lot of kids, I was far away from home. Uh, I was homesick. It wasn't easy. I went there to play football. So I was there playing football for a couple of weeks. Um, and um, I, I knew I couldn't. I was icing my knee every day and I didn't love it. I didn't. And I wasn't actually a football guy, to tell you the truth. I, I liked football. I didn't love it. You got to be a football guy to love it. You know, you got to like putting on the pads. You got to like putting on the helmet. I happen to be good at it. Because I was skilled at it, but I didn't love the, the action of it. like when I was a little kid, I used to play being that punt, pass and kick, you know, and I was really big. For, so you ever see those photos of Andy Reid? Yes. He'd play, yes. He'd do like, <laughs> I was like a version of that. It wasn't so significant. But again, that goes back to me peaking at age eight, maybe 10. Uh, I was, I was a, because I was huge. I was huge and coordinated. So anyways, we're, we're you know, I'm there a couple of weeks. I, I'm really homesick. Um, it was, it wasn't easy, but I, I, I couldn't play football, but a, a strange thing happened. I was walking by the baseball field, watching guys work out for fall baseball. And I said to myself, you know, some, and, and I, you know, I don't want to like downplay anything or I told you I was pretty good at stuff, but I hadn't played baseball since my freshman year in high school. I went running to run track. I played tennis one year, but I had played baseball when I was against it. I think I'm as good as these guys. I think I can, you know, and I hadn't pitched in about three years, you know? So I ended up pitching that weekend at LIU <laughs> and LIU. Remember they did the place and, and the, the trains would be going over the head of the subway trains and I'm out there pitching. I'm like, what the hell happened? So uh, that's kind of how I got started in sports. And like a lot of young people that go to college hard in the beginning, but it's the hard that makes it great. You know what I mean? Like the hard, anything that's hard makes it great. And, and it was tough and I was lonely and I couldn't just go home. And my mother said, no, you're not coming home. You're not coming home. You have to stay. Yeah. And uh, the best thing that you ever been told, you know, your mother, you're kind of, your mother kind of knows, you know, this guy will take care of you, do the right thing. And then, and then things just kind of went from there. So you go through your time at Wagner as a student athlete, you graduate and you're 22 years old and they tap you to be the baseball coach at Wagner. How, first of all, how does this even happen? And how was that transition from being a player to then coaching the same guys that you were probably partying with the previous year? <laughs> no, it was, it was like one, a one year separation. It was a okay, one year. I okay. was young though, because I had graduated at age 21. I was always young in my grades. So I think I was 22 or 23. I was out a year, but I had been an assistant basketball coach. Part of my part of my history of being an athlete at Wagner was I was a walk-on in the basketball team my last three years. So that was the sport that I was passionate about. That's the opportunity I got was to be an assistant basketball coach. And along the way, I had done a very good job of being a good student athlete, being nice, being saying hello to people. I don't know, you know, but being hardworking and being a good guy. So they, an opportunity came along for me to be an assistant basketball coach right after college. And because I was pretty good, I guess good at that. And there was an, a situation like I wouldn't have been named the coach if they had a normal um, situation of a hiring process. It was a situation where the coach stepped down like about a month before the season. And they were a little bit jammed up. And they were like, you know something? Uh, Capper's right here. You know, let's give it, let's let's, 
he's got to bail us out here. He's got to help us out. And it turned out that it was a wonderful thing because I, I took it. I don't think I was, uh, you know, a managerial, uh, you know, anything great or anything like that. But I, I showed that I had discipline. Uh, I had discipline with my team. We were organized. Uh, I remember things is so interesting is like I would practice, Ron, you appreciate this. I would practice because you used to use vans back then, right? I would have to practice the night before driving places. How, who does that, right? DW <laughs> Post. I remember practicing getting the seat up because I had never really had a license or drove. And I was in charge of the vans going to like fall baseball games. I would practice. How do you get to LIU? I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to. And this, I would practice at night taking drives. Is that wild? And uh, figuring out a way to get to the games. And uh, it was a great experience. Ba baseball guys are great. You know, like, you, you, that's why coaching them, they kind of coach themselves. Because it's an individual sport, you know, but it's a team. So you don't want to look bad. So you used to tell a guy, hey, go work on your swing. Go work on this. Go work on your fielding. Well, they're going to look like a dope if they don't. But baseball guys are innately uh, hardworking and have developed their craft. So you kind of don't, you, you got to be in there, you know, you got to, you got to help them along, but it's really that they were so self-motivated and I was pretty good at being uh, mature enough to know, well, you can't hang out with these guys. You know what I mean? You can't, like, you're not one of the guys. So I was probably too distant, you know, even as I became a basketball coach, looking back at, I was too distant to make sure that um, I, I didn't have any conflicts with being a young person. So you spent a few years as baseball coach, then you pivoted back to hoops, um, going to Siena as an assistant under Mike Dean. Um, those teams in Siena were unbelievable. Mark Brown, one of the best players I've seen up close in person, Jeff Roberts and Steve McCoy, the, the wow. team went on to beat Stanford in, in 1989 NCAA tournament, great team. Um, what led you to flip back to hoops and then what was the experience like with Siena, especially the year that, you know, they won 25 games and, and had that NCAA success? Now, you know, it was weird. I never flipped away from hoops. So even when I was a baseball coach, I still coached basketball. So that was always my thing. And I always, I kind of had it in the back of my mind that if I could do a really good job as a head baseball coach, that would impress them someday. That would, that would impress people someday. It was kind of like a resume builder. Um, the time at Siena was amazing. I, 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 I sometimes, uh, Ron, I, 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 you know me, I'm, I never told you I was the greatest coach in the world, but man, could I recruit? I was good at, <laughs> I was good at judging talent and I could recruit and we had really good players and it was really fun. It wasn't just one guy. Mark Brown was probably a signature guy, but I, we, we were loaded. It was fun. Uh, that, we were a 14 seed to beat a three seed, but nobody beat anybody back then. You know what I mean? It was different. Right, yep. That was like a shock. But we were actually better. We were you better. Were. I remember we, we watching the great. game. We, we, were. we would have been a good Big East team. I, I'm telling you, we had two seven-footers. We were a six-nine on the wing. We were the, these guys, these guys, a lot of pro players on the team. They ended up playing European professional basketball. Um, so that's it was just amazing. The year that we beat Stanford, we were the we can relate to this now. We were not, we were the measles team. We had no fans that year. We had a yeah, measles epidemic that. at Wagner, and we went to play. Uh, uh, we didn't play any games. We were the original people to have cardboard cutouts, like famous people when we'd go play, like 
they put like Albert Einstein in the crowd, and you know, like it, they like they, like they do now. So we were we were ahead of our time. We had no fans, and um, but they re it was released like right before the NCAA tournament that we could have fans. So the busloads of people in the in the crowd and everybody when you go to these neutral sites and NCAA tournaments and you've seen it with the 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 fans of the other team. We'll see um, FDU, they'll see Robert, they'll see St. Francis, they'll see, and man, they're the underdog here. Let's get them fired up. Let's cheer them on. Let's go right here to the NCAA tournament game of the lower seed. You can sometimes say a neutral site. Sometimes it can be almost like a home site for you. And, and we've seen that over the years, whether, you know, at, at, of the different, you know, I remember those Central Connecticut teams playing, FDU teams playing. Uh, Wagner, how well they remember how well they played for the first half in, in their game. The crowd will gain energy for that team. Sure. So that was an amazing experience. And again, that happened all when I was young, 25 to, to about 28, 29 years old. And uh, and, and that's kind of that's kind of it was a great time. Great time to be young, recruiting, having fun and uh, learning a lot about basketball. While you're at Siena, um, you're gaining experience. And then Walt, who recruited you to come to Wagner, had you become baseball coach. He brings you back at the ripe old age of 28 to be the nation's youngest basketball coach, much like he did with Bashir Mason, you know, 25, almost 25 years later as, as the youngest basketball coach. Um, you're back at Wagner, um, 1989. Did you feel in your mind that you were ready to be a Division One head coach at that point? Yeah, because I thought that uh, I, I mean, I knew I would have to learn a lot and get better. And you don't know if you can be a head coach until you're a head coach. It really, uh, but I had known that I was a big, it, it without, I, I knew that I was a big part of Sienna's success. Like I wasn't, I, I would look and say, well, that guy came here. I, I, that guy came here. That guy came here. He was rookie of the year. He's player of the year. He's all league. He's this, that. There's like five different guys that were player of the year or, or rookie of the year. So I was like, uh, you know, if that's a big part of it, then I know I'm good at that. And I was good as an assistant giving uh, suggestions. I was good in practice. It's really good. And, and I'm, I'm kind of sound like I'm bragging right now, only to tell you that it doesn't mean you're a good head coach. Like I'm not, I don't feel that when you move that seat over, it is, it is a big deal. It's a much bigger deal. Like, I, I, it has not, it doesn't have to do that much with your knowledge of basketball. It, 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 there's a lot of factors that go into being a good head coach. And I thought I was, I hustled and I developed, I built up a program in three years or four years, but I didn't feel like I was a great head coach. And that's a big difference. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and that's kind of what, what stands out to me is that I got to Wagner, I got there. And we built it up in three years. It was bad. And we built it. We built it up. I remember how hard I worked for five years or four years. I remember having rotary phones and have to put Band-Aid on my finger so I could make calls. That's how I because I was, you know, I knew I could build it up, but I, I didn't, I didn't feel like, uh, I don't, I, I, you know, when I'm talking about how great I was doing this, and I also want you to know, I don't think I was a great head coach. Right. So your first couple of years at Wagner, you know, kind of rough. You're trying to you're, you're still getting your feet wet. Um, 
you, you had my guy Billy Carisco for a couple of years, who was an awesome player. And then you add your second year, you add Bobby Hobson and Lamont Street. So the building blocks begin at that point. Heading into the 91-92 season, like you're adding, you add then, you know, Misha Mutajic, Milan Rikic, uh, Quincy Lewis. So the, the team starts to build. You finish 16 and 12 in 91-92. Okay, so you're, you're on the trajectory is, is aiming up. Going into 92-93 with that core of those five players, did you feel one was did you feel this could be your year and two did you think a showdown with Ryder was pretty much inevitable uh I, I thought we were one of the best teams I thought we had the most um the most talent in the league I thought we were really talented if we could come together we would be there right at the end and I knew Ryder would be the one team that might be in our way and um yeah I, I felt that way you could see it we, we were good I mean the timing of everything uh, was ridiculous. You, you have to be work hard. And when you work hard, you get lucky. So we got lucky with uh, the Yugoslavian players. Remember, there was a war going on. There was a war going on in Yugoslavia and, and at that period of time. And these guys didn't, you know, were trying to, you know, go to college so they wouldn't go to war. And, and so you had an opportunity with them. We had Quincy Lewis, who wasn't was injured during his second year at junior college, and uh, Matt Brady, who's the great assistant coach now at Maryland, uh, identified him, and um, and we had we had it come together. We, we I thought we would be very good uh, and really have a chance, and uh, that's kind of how it played out. We we had it. We had a heck of a chance. That year, you beat Miami, uh, and then you start. You know, the team starts to roll. You go through the uh, NEC tournament, get to the final. Again, it's Wagner, Ryder. I guess this is the elephant in the room in this conversation. The 1993 title game at the Bronx Zoo. I remember watching. I was not working at the NEC, but I watched this game, and I always thought it was one of the best college basketball games I've ever seen. One of the great championship week games and, and finishes, and probably the best NEC final, you know, in, in our 40 years. Before we get into the details of the game, what was the atmosphere like for you in the Bronx Zoo that night? Yeah, people were there an hour and a half early because it was such a small gym and, and it was small. So people had to get there to get a seat. And I don't know if they did pre-sale. So everybody was there incredibly early and it was wild. And then you had the, you had the uh, rider, you had a Wagner section. It was allowed a certain amount of tickets. You had the rider, you had, you know, it was a big deal when, when um, ESPN would come in to do the game. Remember, Tom Meese was the broadcaster. Yeah. We, we, we have lost him since, but he was, he was great. They did a thing where it was just a unique game for the country because the, the, the you know, Ryder had gained home court advantage. They had a small arena at the time. It really stuck out as like, this place is nuts. It actually had a <laughs> stage they did the open for the game on a on the stage, almost like everybody had played CYO basketball, youth league basketball. There was a stage at the end of it. Um, it, it was an amazing atmosphere. It was highly charged. It was um, it was uh, it was it was quite special to build up to that game. I mean, everything you just said is why NEC finals are always great. Yes. They're different than you see in the Big East final, and there's nothing to take. Don't take away anything. Those are some great games. 
but when you pack them into the small gyms and you get that sort of atmosphere, there's nothing like it that you will see all season. I don't know why more teams, more leagues don't adopt what the NEC has never gotten away from. Why wouldn't you reward the higher seed for their two months or three months of a great work and then create this atmosphere that is so so amazing for a championship game? I, I am so happy that the Northeast Conference has never gotten away from that. You have to reward everybody for getting, for getting there and, and giving him that and, and creating that type of atmosphere. And oftentimes, as we've seen in the Northeast Conference, the home court advantage does not necessarily help in a championship no. game. In fact, more time, I don't know what the percentage is. You'll know it exactly. But it's shocking how many times it almost works to uh, the disadvantage or teams don't play particularly well at home for that one game. But I think you're right, the buzz the atmosphere, the juice in the building of a Northeast Conference final. It, it's almost like missing it, even in some of the um, major league. You know what I mean? Even when they do things at, at well, certainly when they do things, at, you know, some of the leagues that play at the bigger, like the Barclays Center, even there are times at Madison Square Garden, you don't feel the energy. Right. It doesn't feel like it. Even the ACC tournament, there are times it feels a lot better when it's at Duke in North Carolina than it does when it's in a neutral site. I, I, I've never been able to, I understand it in those cases because it's, it's major and it's a TV thing and it's all that. And you're, and you're, you're, but uh, I'm so proud that the Northeast Conference has never gotten away from that. And I think it's great on both the men's and women's side that you play at home, home sites. Yep. So there was that claustrophobic feeling in the Bronx Zoo that night. The people are right on the court. So you, the game, as the game goes on, you it's a duel. So it's a duel. You have your guy, Bobby Hobson, Derek Subron Ryder, a guy I saw play numerous times. Again, one of the great players in Northeast Conference history. Probably nobody even really knows about. He was the player of the year that year. Uh, Bobby Hobson, first team All-NEC. They're going shot for shot in the second half. What was this game like for you as a coach, just watching this all unfold? It, it was wild because I remember before the game, uh, Jim Angles, who's now the coach, I have a really great staff. I mean, Matt Brady has been a great head coach. He's now the assistant at Maryland. Uh, Jim Angles is at Columbia right now as a head coach. Jerry Burns has won, won over 800 games as a junior college coach. They, they had a suggestion, like he said, listen, it's going to be too loud. You have to have signs for the plays. So I remember holding up signs at times for the different plays that were going on. Um, it, it was... It, it, it was amazing. It was just an amazing battle watching these two go at it. And uh, Bobby Hobson, who, you know, remind you, we, we, we lost him. He passed away this past year, which is incredibly sad. Uh, and, and, and Derek Suber going at it. It was, it was a, a special game. It was special atmosphere. It was a special energy. Um, and, and, it, 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 and it came down to, it came down to the last four seconds of the game. And, and if you want, I'll, I'll, I'll take you through that. And, and uh, you know, let's yeah, let me set the scene. Let me set the scene. So you're, you're down, um, you're down to uh, Bobby gets fouled. Uh, he goes to the line. He makes the first, you're down one, misses the second Quincy Lewis tracks down the rebound, finds Hobson who uh, hits a, hits a, like a crazy runner. And you are now winning this game with four seconds to go. Now, before we get to the final play, 
in watching back the footage of that, the place you're, you're everybody's going nuts in there, your whole staff and your players, you look miserable at this point. You're telling everybody, you're motioning people to calm yeah. down. You're throwing guys into the huddle. You're yelling at them and everything. What was that last huddle like? Was it hard to keep your composure in that atmosphere? Uh, to do yeah, I, I, I knew that I had to get them focused on, on what was going on. And, and, what, and we, had lot, we had had several players fall out of that game. We had had foul trouble that whole game, which is a whole other thing we can talk about. We can do another segment <laughs> on that, okay? You want to do another segment on where, – where, I could do an entire segment on the fouls throughout that game if you'd like to – if you'd like – no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. The um, – but, all right, let me take you – all right, so there's a timeout. And I got guys on the floor – that hadn't played much. There were two or three guys that didn't play much in that game. They had to go on the floor and play defense for that possession. So I'm thinking, all right, how can we lose this game? So or how can we get in trouble? So I said to a big guy named Brandon Kenny, you're on the ball right now. You're on the ball. But if they run the baseline, I do not want you to run with them if they run the baseline. Because there's an old play where if you, you slip a guy in as he runs a baseline and he draws a charge. So I'm trying to explain. And I also said, don't reach over the end line. Don't reach over the end line. Don't get a technical foul. All that. I'm saying that. Everybody else guard. Boom, 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 whatever. I remember saying that specifically. We go out there. We're on the – we have a big man on the ball. Kevin Bannon, the coach of Ryder, sees the setup. He then calls timeout. We come back to the bench. In my infinite wisdom, I'm like, oh, man. I'm taking him off the ball and playing him as a free safety right now. Free safety so they can't throw over the top or something different on that. And so what happens is we're kind of like a little mixed up even. Well, we got a safety, but then we're guarding. But guys, I have guys on the floor that hadn't, I don't know, but Suber gets the ball in a really good momentum spot. Like yes. curls and then gets it and he's gone. Because I'm telling guys, probably to a fault don't foul don't foul right you know the one thing you don't want to do is foul you give them two free throws and lose the game you got to make them make a tough shot and uh you know it, it, what happens is we take the guy off the ball he gets a running start he gets it dribbles down makes it uh, a pretty tough shot not a ridiculous shot though it should right. be known this wasn't a half court bomb Right. This was inside. This is about a, I don't know. I, I tried not to watch it much, but it probably was like a, an 18 foot shot, 17, 18 foot shot. Right around the free throw line. Yeah. Under it's duress, traffic. under duress, had to hurry it, but he made it. And guys are like cautious. And, uh, you know, it, 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 and then they went and the place goes nuts, just like you would expect. And, and it was, it, it was sad. It was, it was, it was tough uh, to take our guys had worked so hard and I had felt responsible for it. And, and what was amazing, you know, you're always trying to get recognition, right? Like you always want to like hear your name on the radio and stuff like that. Right. And at the time, Mike and the Mad Dog was a great show, right? When that one, the greatest radio show that this was their probably when they're really gaining juice and momentum, right? Mad Dog. Yep. And so Mad Dog, was just crushing me the next day, just destroying me. Timmy, how could you not have a guy on the ball? 
Jimmy, go and then, and then Francesca goes, yeah, yeah, that was a bad play, you know. And, and they're going back and forth, and I'm getting destroyed. I had waited my whole life to be mentioned on WFAN, Mike and the Mad Dog, and there they are, just teeing off on me for a good few minutes. And uh, it was, it was, um, it was strange, you know. It was tough, but I did gain one positive out of that. I did gain a positive out that that my 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 future wife was at that game, so that's kind of that's kind of where I kind of got uh, got to sort of not in meet her after the game, but she was at that game. So there there was um, there was some pluses out of that. Absolutely, high major. You recruited high major in your uh, yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's move on past that. Next season, uh, Misha, he transfers to LSU. That was a big loss. You fall again to Ryder in the semis. Then the next few years after that, you know, Wagner ranged from competitive to, to, to struggling. And then um, by 1999, you are let go. Um, at, at the time, I'm going to read a quote here. You said, I'm not shocked. I don't take it as unfair. It's always wins and losses, and there weren't enough wins. Um, yeah. At that point, when it was over at Wagner, did you still want to coach? Like, what was your mindset in 1999? No, I, I was, um, I, my mindset was I wanted to try to be a broadcaster. I wanted to get out. I had kind of known, I probably got an extra year that a lot of guys wouldn't have got because Walt had, again, recruited me. My athletic director had recruited me. He had hired me twice. He kind of told me before the game, uh, my final year, Hey, uh, hey, Tim, you need to win. Let, let's put a number on this, like 15. Can you win 15 games this year? Otherwise, you're gonna, I'm going to have to let you go. So I would see that Walt kind of wanted me to win as much as I wanted to win. It just wasn't going to be the number that you needed. So, it, and so I kind of knew it was coming. And uh, along the way, the last couple of years, I had done um, uh, some uh, TV appearances for the NCAA tournament. I had always had to speak at these luncheons in New York City, and guys like you would come up to me, especially you, would come up to me and, 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 and encourage me that I was pretty good at that. I was pretty good at communicating, maybe telling a joke. Uh, and I was you know, getting my feet wet with, uh, with broadcasting. I knew that would be a, a little bit of a longer haul than most because some of the national names can go right to an ESPN game. And I, had to, I knew I had to grind it out so my focus was much more on moving forward towards broadcasting uh, and, um, and, and then moving on. But, I, you know, I wasn't like one of these guys that had uh, three years left on my contract. You know what right, I mean? Right. Like this was, this was 1999, <clears throat> 2000, Wagner College at the time. Now, it's gotten a lot, like in the last 20 years, the contracts and all this. Now, I was like an employee, you know I was like, yeah, well, you know, you, you, I'll pay you a little bit, but get, get out of here. You're, you know, it's time to move on. <laughs> you know, so I, I kind of had to build my broadcasting thing and do like clinics for kids and teaching. And you know how big one-on-one -on -one instructors are now? That's a big business. Yep. I was probably the original guy doing that. I would drive to Long Island every day. I would, I, I know me and Jason Hernandez, who, who's a, a professional, a pro coach right now in the NBA, would be the only people I knew in Long Island that would be teaching kids one on one skills shooting. I do a lot of that so I could get my feet wet with, with broadcasting. 
Thanks for joining us for part one of Made in the NEC with Tim Capstra on the NEC Overtime Pod. Be on the lookout for part two, where we talk to Tim about his transition to broadcasting, his time as an NEC analyst, his highly acclaimed holding court halftime show, and how he hooked up with the Brooklyn Nets as their color analyst.